Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. Jump with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I was joking, we may just have to read a handful of verses and then just close in prayer, uh, because... It's not going to take much exposition, although I do feel um, that there are some specific things in light of these verses and this passage that the Lord has for us today um, as we are gathering this way. Um, And I pray that even as it was in Luke 24, where it says that he opened or he unlocked their minds in order for them to understand the scriptures. Um, Right now, I pray for a beautiful grace by the spirit for our hearts to be softened for our minds to be opened for things to be unlocked in a revelatory way for us to understand the scriptures as we look into ephesians chapter 4 we're going to read the first six verses it says therefore this is paul writing to the church at ephesus without setting up way too much context it's paul writing to the church at ephesus Um, Chapter 4 is what is, um, if you academically look at the book and break things down, um, yeah, so the first three chapters has been deemed Christology. Um, It's beautiful. Um, It is just incredible language. Um, All of the victory that Jesus has won and now the inheritance for the saints. Um, The first three chapters are overwhelming. They are um, just beautiful. And Paul begins chapter 4, and verse 1 says, therefore. Therefore is a transitionary word. It means in light of everything that we've just talked about. Right? So chapters 1, 2, and 3 were building something. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 have been referenced as ecclesiology. Um, Meaning, chapters 1 through 3, this is all of what God has done. This is everything that Christ has made available for the saints. It's the inheritance by the power of his spirit that now resides on the inside. Everything that has been granted access. Chapters 1 through 3. Beautiful. Again, chapter 4 begins, therefore. Just meaning, um, in light of chapters 1, 2, and 3, that whole portion of the conversation, all of that being true, therefore. Now these things. Chapters 1 through and 3. If these things are real, if they are true, then therefore, it's a transition. And so he's building. And in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you. Um, It's it's a pleading. It's it's stronger than just, hey, I encourage you, like if you ever get around to this. Um, It's the same language that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5 um, when he's talking about a new creation and he's talking about we're now ambassadors carrying the word of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. He says imploring all men or pleading with all men. Other translations literally say begging men and women to be reconciled to God while there is still time. Um, it's a strong word, and this is what we have. He says, I implore you, therefore, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, therefore, as an ambassador, therefore, as one of the servants of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy 
of the calling with which you have been called. I'm pleading with you. It's more than just a simple encouragement. I'm exhorting you. I'm imploring you. I am pleading with you on behalf of everything that God has done. The victory that has been worked and won in and through Christ on the cross. All of the inheritance that has been made available to the saints by the power of God's own spirit. Now alive, now jealously working, now residing on the inside, conforming a people that have come to believe. They have begged God, they have pleaded their allegiance to Jesus. Now, I I implore you um, to walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Um, We need to take a step back for just a second and create a, a bigger scenario where this verse is going to read into the scenario that we create. It's a bigger picture. We're going to zoom way out for a second and look at things from more of a macro way instead of the the micro here, what we have in Ephesians 4. The calling with which you have been called. Walk worthy of that. Walk worthy of the calling. He's not just talking about if you feel called to be a teacher, if you feel called to be an evangelist. Hey, you know, I feel called, um, you know, to whatever it is that you want to do. But whatever it is, he's not talking about an individual, a isolated, a bits and pieces, Americanized version of, well, what's my calling? Well, I just need to know what God is saying to me, not necessarily what he's saying to anybody or everybody else, because I don't really care about that. All I want to know is what is he saying to me? You see, our culture has conditioned us to be very isolated, to be very fragmented, to see things in bits and pieces that cater to our desires, bits and pieces that are preferential to the things that we feel ambitious for. What is my call? What is my lane? What is my destiny? What is the thing that God is asking me to do? This is not at all what Paul is saying. Um, He's talking to a people. He's talking to a church, a family of believers in Ephesus. And he's telling them in a communal sense, in a corporate sense, in a familial sense. This letter is being read in a corporate way to a family that is desiring to bear the image of Jesus and be on mission for God by the power of his spirit in their city. Paul is talking to a people more than he's talking to a person. Um, And our our cultural conditioning has just brought us to the point where we read things more as it applies to a person than it does to a people. Um, Because in most scenarios, um, some of us don't even want to be a part of a people. We only care about what God has for me individually and not necessarily the bits and pieces of that that affect us together corporately. Um, But although that is some of our desire, that's not God's desire. God has a people. He has a family. He has a church, which is a bride. It's his body in the earth. And Paul says, walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called to. Uh, We need to understand that God is right now working out what seems to be mission impossible. What do I mean? From the very beginning, even as we have referenced um, weeks and weeks ago, Genesis 2, God is looking at Adam and he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to fashion for him a suitable helper. And we know 
God lays Adam down, puts him into a deep sleep, pierces his side, pulls a rib out, forms on the outside a bride that he is going to present to Adam. He wakes Adam up from a deep sleep and then he presents to him the bride that he pulled out of him and fashioned for him and the two come into covenant and become one. And now they are to, through intimate access and beautiful fellowship with God, they are to worship him in creation, bearing his image and his authority and extending the boundaries of the garden to the furthest corners of the earth. Subdue the earth. I've given you dominion. I've given you authority. Um, we, We see the beautiful parallels here. God looks at Adam and he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Hear it this way. It's not good for the son of man to be alone. Throughout the gospels, Jesus 78 times references himself as the son of man. Not what other people said about him. Not things that he may have come into agreement with in different moments and times where people were gripped with a revelation of who he was. I'm talking about moments where he revealed himself or introduced himself, talked about himself in a particular way 78 times the son of man. So when we hear it's not good for the man to be alone, we hear it's not good for the son of man to be alone. It's the father's desire. As he looked upon Adam, what was an immediate evaluation was the revealing of eternal implications. It's not good for the man to be alone. But this is the father. I will fashion a bride, a suitable companion, a helper, for the man. Adam gets put into a deep sleep. Interestingly enough, Jesus lays down his own life. No man takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord for the father has given me power to lay my life down and also to pick it back up. No greater love does a man have than this, that he would be willing to lay his own life down for his friends. Jesus gets put into a deep sleep, though we know it's a deeper sleep than Adam. Jesus lays his life down, not only into the grave, but into death and even into the depths of hell. Adam's side was pierced and a part of him was pulled out. We know Jesus' side was pierced and the blood and water came out. (laughs) Adam was awakened, if you would. God woke him up from a deep sleep. We know that God woke his son up from a deep sleep by the power of of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came thundering into the grave, overcoming death and conquering hell and caused the son to wake up, resurrected alive from the dead, glorified as an eternal human on the other side of death itself. We know the father with the peace that he pulled out of Adam formed and fashioned a suitable helper, a companion, a bride. Eve, that when he woke Adam up from the deep sleep, he would present to Adam the bride that he desired to form for him that would serve alongside of him. And when Adam was awakened from his deep sleep, he was able to behold the bride that his father desired in order to fashion for him, to present to him. And the two came into covenant and became one. 
we know, after Jesus' side was pierced, what was pulled out of him, again, by the Father's desire, is now being accomplished as the Father is forming, he's fashioning. He's making a suitable helper, a companion, the bride for the son that he loves, honors, has established and enthroned. And we know that there is coming a moment. Revelation 19, 7 describes it to be the marriage supper of the Lamb whenever the bride has made herself ready. We understand that the Father has a jealousy from the very beginning until whenever we experience the consummation of the age, the climax of time, the ending of time as we know it, when the Son of Man returns after the Father releases him. Psalm 2, he is seated, he is at rest. Even while the nations rage against the Lord, the Most High, Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, and his Son that he loves, the rightful ruler of creation, we know that while the nations are raging against the Lord and his Anointed One, that he's seated and he's waiting for the moment when his father will release him so that he can come again and his enemies will become a footstool to him eternally. We know this. We have beautiful glimpses of it in Daniel's vision in chapter 7 when he sees this beautiful man, this divine human, the son of man, when he sees him come riding upon the clouds and he sees as he approaches his father, the ancient of days, Yahweh, that his father, because he loves his son, gives him all authority, gives him the right to judge all of creation. This is Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5. When every man and woman that's ever been alive is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Daniel sees the right to judge the activity of the beasts, the wicked beasts that roam about in the earth. The first beast that Daniel sees looks like a lion. This is Peter's encouragement in 1 Peter 5.8. He says, for your enemy, the adversary, the devil, roams about amongst the earth like a lion seeking whom he may devour. But Daniel sees that the Son of Man has the right to rule he has the Son of Man, the right to judge. He has the Son of Man with an eternal or an unending kingdom and dominion. But then he sees a people. This is Daniel 7, 14. A people that he possesses, that are exalted, they're glorified. From every tribe, every nation, every tongue to serve alongside this beautiful son of man. Listen, to serve alongside Genesis 2, I will form or fashion a bride, a suitable helper to serve alongside you. Again, immediate evaluation, yet eternal implications here. That's Daniel 7, 14. We know because John is gloriously raptured. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Isle of Patmos, they tried to boil him and he wouldn't die. A faithful man in his 90s, still loving and serving Jesus. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. I was gripped. I was raptured gloriously. 
delightfully, he came to me. And he says, I turned to see the voice of the one that was speaking. And when I turned, there he was. John had known him for many years of his life. But when he saw him then, he saw him unlike any other way that he had ever known him. Man, may our hearts not grow familiar with the one that we feel we have seen, with the one that has granted us access to a glimpse over different moments and seasons and periods of our life. And John says, when I saw him there on the Isle of Patmos, when he came to me, when I beheld him in the fullness of his glory, when he was revealed gloriously by the Spirit, I fell on my face as though I was a dead man. And John is brought up and into a beautiful throne room vision. We know in Revelation 4, I heard a voice above, a door was opened, come up and I will show you things that are to come. And in Revelation 5, 9, again, it speaks of this beautiful people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, worshiping and adoring the Lamb the worthy one, the only one worthy in the heavens, on the earth and below the earth to open up the scroll. He's the lion, but he's the lamb. He's an eternal human glorified forever on the other side of death. He's resurrected and ascended and he bears the scars of his surrender and his sacrifice. He bears the sacrifice in an eternal way for the bride that he thought was to die for. But here is this people again in Revelation 5, 9, gathered around the lamb in the throne, worshiping again from every tribe, every nation, and every tongue. And once again in Revelation 7, verse 9, this people that God has purchased for his son by his own blood, the bride that he longs to adorn, the bride that he's forming right now, from the very beginning until what we know is the very end. A bride, which is a company of people. It's a redeemed creation. It's a new version of humanity. Conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, the son of man, the lion, the lamb, the exalted one, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Paul gives us insight in Romans 8. Those of us that have come to believe, we are predestined by the Father's desire to be conformed to the image of the Son that He loves, Jesus. And God is right now working out what seems to be, what seems to be to you and I in our natural, finite human minds, what seems to be mission impossible. God is right now working out not just in America, but throughout the nations of the earth. He's working out the forming of a people, the fashioning of a bride, without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. A bride that is being made ready for the return of the bridegroom. A people that are beautifully unified. They are one in him. Hear that. They are one people in Jesus. They are one people 
right now being formed by the power of God's own spirit that he has shed abroad in our hearts. God has shared himself with us and he has taken up residency on the inside of us in order to ready us as a people for the return of his bridegroom's son when he releases him to take possession of the people that he laid down his life for, not just in an immediate sense, but eternally, which means once time Time has come to an end forever and ever and ever. Amen. Praise God forever and ever. Um, but right now, as we survey the situation across the nations, this seems to be impossible. That God is readying a people that are one. A people that are unified as a beautiful family in the, in the earth. A people that have come together because again, the cross has created a way for a new, a new community. The cross has created a way for a new version of humanity. And right now, it seems impossible to think that God is going to be able to succeed in his desire, in his plan to fulfill this purpose that he worked in Christ when he is now the firstborn alive from the dead, Colossians language, so that he can have preeminence in all things. He is the firstborn from the dead, alive again forever, resurrected, glorified again as an eternal human. Um, this is our promise. Jesus had the spirit and he went into the grave and his humanity had to be judged. But the divinity that resided on the inside of him would have never allowed his holy one to taste decay. He could not have remained there because of what resided on the inside of him. Again, Colossians 1, it pleased God to put the fullness of who he is into Christ by the power of his spirit. Jesus said in John 16, 7, it's better for you that I go. I know you like it. It's cool. You, you have me here with you. But right now I'm standing on the outside of you and beside you. But John 16, 7, he reveals, it's better for you that I go because I'm going to send another to be with you. But not just with you. He will be with you by way of being inside you. Because it is really cool to have me standing beside you but it's my desire to rise up inside you. And Jesus sends the spirit. He is the great baptizer. Jesus sends the spirit. Acts 2, they are gloriously filled by the suddenlies of God as they were tarrying, worshiping, fasting, ministering to the Lord, waiting, abiding for the promise that the father said he would send. Luke closes his gospel with Jesus promising, my father is going to send the spirit. Go and wait. Acts 1 opens, you are going to be endued with power from on high. When the father sends the promise, I'm telling you, the Holy Ghost is coming. Go and wait. And they are gloriously filled. And we understand the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is death. Which is why the enemy, through a manipulated effort, is able to hold death over us as an enemy. Us meaning creation. Us meaning those whom God has created, sons and daughters, humanity. Inherently, the penalty of sin has rested upon our lives, which is why death has been seen as an enemy. But the psalmist writes, O death, where is your sting? 
Paul communicates in 1 Corinthians 15 when he's unpacking, when he's unveiling the beauty of the mystery of the resurrection. Paul says, death is no longer an adversary because Jesus has conquered death by the laying down of his own life, by making atonement, by him being the sacrificial lamb and the high priest. He is the sacrifice and he is the priest, the high priest. He is the offering. He is the atonement. He laid down his own life and then received that offering. His father did. But Paul says that death is no longer an enemy. It's no longer an adversary. Because death is no longer what destroys us. Death is now what transforms us. And even death itself has become a tool in the hand of the Lord. Again, even if we face the grave one day, it is the promise that God has put his Holy Spirit on the inside of us. For when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, there is a moment coming where the Son of Man will appear in the sky. The trumpet will sound, the lightning will flash, and he will come riding upon the clouds. He will come for us. The King is coming. And Paul says, that those who are dead in Christ, meaning those of us who potentially are going to have to face the grave, we're going to come to the end of our days. We're going to breathe our last. We're going to have to face death itself. That the dead in Christ will rise. And those who are alive at the time of his appearing, the dead in Christ that will be resurrected, they will raise. And those who are alive at the time of his appearing, Paul says we will ascend to meet him. We will be caught up with him into the cloud. So here's the bigger picture. God is making ready a family in the earth, a bride, a people, his church, making them ready for the return of his son. And right now, that seems completely impossible. Because when you survey the land Let's just use our nation, America. God is unifying his people. He is destroying all of the divisions. He is, by the power and the working of his own spirit, on the inside of those that belong to Jesus. He is working in us to make us ready for the return of our bridegroom king, this beloved son of man. So when Paul says, I implore you to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called, we have been called to be this family. We have been called to be this people. We are called to be a part of this bridal company and community, this family that bears God's image, this people, this church in the earth, in our moment in history, a unified people, a unified people, um, a unified people. This is the calling to which we have been called. Let's continue on with our verses in Ephesians 4. Um, we read verse number one. We're going to read it again. Um, just so that we can read it in the flow of thought that Paul is building here. Um, because things are about to get really special. We're going to read 1 through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 
This is where it gets good. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. Um, let's just hop right into it, all right? We have a mandate on our lives by God's spirit in us to be a unified people. Let me encourage you. The president is not meant to unify us as a people. The issue of the president in this moment in history is dividing us. The president was never meant to unify us as a people. We have a bigger calling than that. We have a bigger calling than that. It, the president divides us. Our king unifies us. The presidency divides us. Our king unifies us. We are a Jesus people. We are a company of consecrated lovers who have pledged our allegiance not to the Republican Party, not to the Democrat Party, not to the Independent Party, not to any party in a political system or a government structure in America or throughout any of the nations of the earth. We have not pledged our allegiance to these things. That is why the president does not unify us. Our king unifies us. Let's just listen to the way that it says we're supposed to conduct ourselves with all humility and gentleness. With all humility and gentleness? With all humility and gentleness? L let me ask you, um, with all humility and gentleness, has this been the way that you've been conducting yourself on social media? Um, because we get it. Uh, everybody feels like a social media tough guy. Um, everybody says stuff to all kinds of people on social media that you would probably never be willing to say to somebody's face if you bumped into them in the grocery store. Or worse than that, in the parking lot of the grocery store. Um, that's not to say that I believe in fivefold ministry and laying on of hands and that kinds of stuff. That, that's not at all what I'm saying. All I'm saying is that social media as a false sense of reality and an, uh, a false sense of a real experience um, has given us the ability to feel like we can and should just say whatever we want to say to whoever and about whoever. Um, but we have this charge with all humility and gentleness with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Um, the president is not the one that's supposed to unify us. We have a lot of division right now. A lot. Um, Paul speaks about it in 2 Corinthians 6, when there were believers that ended up in court because they couldn't reconcile matters that they were going through. Whatever their experience was, they could not reconcile it and restore the unity of their relationship. They ended up in court before an unsaved judge in a pagan environment. And Paul says to them, 
This is 2 Corinthians 6, 1, 2, 3, 4. Paul says to them, don't you understand? There's coming a moment where we're going to bring judgment to the world. We're going to judge nations alongside of King Jesus. Don't you realize that we're going to judge angels? Paul is encouraging them with what is ultimate that should be able to help satisfy the things between them that are immediate. Paul is exhorting them from the bigger picture so that whatever their distorted or compromised view of the immediate picture is doing to influence their hearts so that they are behaving in a way that is not in accordance with the calling to which we have been called, Paul is bringing a solution from an ultimate influence for something that should help in order to reconcile things that are immediately influencing us. Um, and in this moment... There is so much backbiting, criticism, slander, gossip, critique, malice, hatred, envy. There is so much vile hostility being spewed. I'm not even talking about in the world, right? We get it. We expect sinners to sin. I expect people that don't know Jesus not to act like Jesus. I don't expect people or desire to hold them accountable to scriptural accountabilities, to the working of the spirit on the inside. I don't have that expectation at all. Why? Because they don't yet have intimate fellowship with Jesus. When I didn't know the Lord, I sinned. And in some ways, I was really, really good at it. But we have a different accountability. Um, you see, you and I, we're not held to the same standard of the world. We're in the world, but we're not to be of it. Uh, at least that's what Jesus prayed in his great, his great priestly prayer in John 17. John 17, verse 16, that they may be in the world, but they're not of it. Any more than I was in it, but I'm not of it. It's what Paul encourages in 2 Corinthians 6, 17. He says, come out and be separate. Come out and be different. You no longer have an excuse to behave like them, to act like them, to conduct yourself the same way that they do. It doesn't matter to me if you have strength in numbers it doesn't matter to me how many people you can get that are going to side with you or agree with the way that you're carrying yourself. Our accountability is not to other people's opinions. We have scriptural accountability. We have the beautiful accountability of the spirit that's working on the inside. We have the accountability of the voice and the presence of Jesus. We have the accountability of the secret place where hopefully some of us, if we're conducting ourselves in ways that are not in line with the accountability that we find here, um, let, let me encourage you. This is what we do. We do this. We do this. We do all of this. Um, we don't do some of this. Uh, we don't um, uh, try to skew this and massage this and we don't try to change the language of this so that it can fit my character or my um, you know, category so that it can fit my camp or my stream or so that it can fit whatever situation it is that I'm trying to do right now. No, no, no. We do this. We do all of this. This is the standard. This is the plumb line. This is what we are about. But in line with that, in line with that, um, right now, there are many that are divided. Um, you know that as well as I do. There are many that are divided. Um, and maybe it's potentially because we haven't yet seen 
that any attack on our unity is an assault on our authority. Um, maybe it's because we haven't yet understood um, that what God does bears his image. God in himself is a divine community. He's a divine family. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. There's a beautiful fellowship and a unity that they enjoy, that they experience, and they've led us into that. They've brought us into that. Think about it. When you're baptized, you're baptized into the experience of a new way to see family and do family. Um, it's a new experience of family, which then creates a new expression of family as we live out what we see in him. Um, God is now our reference point for family. Uh, we don't even have our own ability to create our divided, unique definitions of family and then try to champion that or live that out. Um, we see in him what family looks like and that which we behold is now what we are becoming and what we now experience is what we are now expressing as we live this out together, unified, um, unified. Which, which is the tough part. Um, because listen to all of these ones that we read. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body. There's one body. Um, listen to that. I, I don't care if there's 1,100, 1,200 different denominations. There's one body. We can come up with all of our own theological differences and our own self-created, embraced ways to be divided and to be okay with it. Um, but God is not okay with it. And there are certain things that are becoming normal and cultural throughout the body that are not okay in light of the kingdom and the desires that the father has for his family and the bride, his people that bear his image in the earth in this hour. Um, this is you and this is me. We can come up with all of our differences and all of our divisions and all of the ways that we've just become okay with it. But Paul says there's one body. There's not the black body, the white body, the Latino body. There's not the Asian body. There's not the Arab body. There's not the Russian body, the European body, the Canadian body. There's one body. There's not black church, white church. There's one church. There's one church. Um, now, you might be thinking to yourself, um, I don't even see how that's going to be possible. Again, I began by saying when you survey the situation, it's easy to come to maybe a potential conclusion that this is mission impossible. But God is committed to it. And I promise you that by the power of his spirit, he is going to fulfill his purpose. He is going to accomplish his desires in his people. He is going to ready a bride for the great bridegroom king. There will be a bride without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. There will be a unified people that bear his image in the earth. No longer divided, no longer hostile, no longer embracing all of these different particular ways to suffer and to create distance. He will accomplish his purpose because the purpose belongs to him and not to us. It's his purpose. It's what he is doing. It's the desire that he had, which is why he began forming humanity in the first place. I will create a people, fashion a bride 
form a suitable helper for the son of man because I love him and he deserves a bride that will eternally be a companion to him. This is God's desire. This isn't our desire. But along the way, we are accountable to God's desires and not just our own. And this is where the power of the spirit working on the inside of us as a people has to bring us to the place where we surrender to God's desires instead of championing our own. Because there's one body. And then he immediately says, and one spirit. And it is that one spirit, the Holy Spirit, that is forming one body in the earth. There is one spirit that is forming one body. Hey, listen, I'm telling you, these are the days. Drop all that political madness. Put down all that denominational nonsense. These are the days to forsake, to surrender, to submit ourselves to the Father's desire. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, as ambassadors of this king's kingdom, we bear upon our own lives the mission to be reconcilers in the earth. We carry the ministry and the word. It is more than a burden that we have. Well, you know, I, I just have a burden to try to reconcile things. It's bigger than a fleshly burden. We bear the unique responsibility for the opening, the access to God's heart. He has led us in to what is on his heart and what he is doing through the nations of the earth and we you me us one body one spirit we are reconcilers we are reconcilers in the nations because we are ambassadors we are imploring men pleading with them while there's still time be reconciled to god and to one another be reconciled to god and to one another i'm telling you Drop all the political madness in any way. Uh, we need to see that it's not the president that unifies us. It's King Jesus. We need to understand that it's not the president's policies that are going to heal the nation. It's our king's policies that is the recipe for healing in our nation. You want to know, well, well, Jesus has policies. He absolutely does. Look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Look at the constitution of the kingdom. Look at the great unveiling of the beauty of the nature of Jesus and the DNA of the conforming to his image that right now is working on the inside of us to make us more like him. These are his policies. And we conduct ourselves according to kingdom policies regardless of what natural worldly politics is telling us is right and wrong. I don't really give a rip what a Republican or a Democrat is telling us we should live like in the earth. Our hearts are not bound to worldly politics and the policies that are being written from a broken man and a broken system. Um, we have a broken man that laid down his life for us. We have a beautiful man that is seated in the heavens right now that is broken in a very different way than the world system of politics and power, manipulation and leverage, finances and narratives, military might. All of this 
is worldly madness and chaos. And Daniel saw in his vision in chapter 7 that when this great king comes, he's coming with his kingdom. And it will be unending. His dominion will be eternal. I'm telling you right now, things are broken. But we have a broken man that is sitting in the heavens. We have a broken man who is beautiful beyond description. Powerful beyond any world leader that's ever lived. He reigns. And he is at rest. And his solution to the crisis of the hour is a people that bear his image. That have his nature. That don't only see him in light of being some mascot for their version of Christianity. But a people that have been transformed. A people that are in the world, but they've been called out of it. Because God is working on the inside of them to make them something that is very different from the other versions of humans that are alive and surrounding in the world and this moment. We are a different version of humanity. Why? How could I say that? We've been born again. And Paul says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. You and I are a new version of humanity. And we're accountable to it. We're accountable to conduct ourselves according to the nature of this broken man that is seated in the heavens. We are accountable to the Sermon on the Mount, the constitution of the kingdom, the nature of Jesus as he is working in us by the power of his spirit in order to conform us to his image. We're accountable to it. Paul says there's one body and there's one spirit, but he doesn't stop there. He says, just also as you were called in one hope of your calling, because there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father who is over all. There's one God and Father who is over all. He's through all and he's in all. Paul says, fight to preserve the unity of the spirit. Um, I would ask you in these days, um, what have you been doing to fight to preserve the unity of the spirit? What have you been doing in order to be responsible with being a reconciler? What have you been doing in order to champion unity? In order to forsake all of the worldly conversations, categories, the unique arguments and different ways that a sort of hostility has been wielded against our nation. And again, I'm not necessarily um, trying to create a conversation for the rest of the world in order to champion what I'm saying. Um, but you and I, for sure, there is no out on this. There's no out on this. Um, we're a people that belong to Jesus. We don't belong to a political party. We're a people that belong to Jesus. We don't belong to our denominational differences. We're a people that belong to Jesus. We don't belong to all of the movements and all of the crowds and all of the categories and all of the different unique um, conversations right now that are surfacing all over our nation. We don't belong to any of these things. We belong to a broken man who sits in the heavens. We belong to a beautiful king 
who right now is readying a people in the earth that bear his image, that would love him even when confronted with death, that will honor him with the entirety of their lives, that will worship him with the way that they live. King Jesus. Paul says fight to preserve that unity because you bear a calling on your life. Um, you bear a calling that's bigger than just whatever social sphere it is where you may have responsibility. Um, you bear a calling upon your life that's much bigger than just the maybe unique and more personalized day-to-day -day things that we're accountable to and we want to steward well. Um, you bear a calling on your life. And he says it's time that you begin to walk worthy of that calling. Walk worthy of that calling. Man, you want to see revival in our nation? Begin to walk worthy of that calling. Man, you want to see a great awakening in our moment? Begin to walk worthy of that calling. Begin to put down and aside all of the differences. And by the power of God's spirit, again, what I'm saying is completely impossible so long as you go about it a worldly way. Um, it is completely impossible as long as you attempt it in a fleshly way. If you try to by your own wisdom, by your own preferences, through your own opinions, by whatever avenue it is that you are creating and laying out on the table and telling people that if they don't meet you according to your terms, as long as you come about it in a worldly or fleshly or natural way, um, you ain't got a shot. You have no chance. But Jesus said, fear not. I have overcome the world. Hear that. Fear not. I have overcome the world. Now you go. And I'm giving you all authority. Ephesians 2 tells us that the wall of hostility has been torn down. The wall of hostility has been torn down. And all of God's enemies in an eternal sense, he has made a public spectacle of them through the laying down of his own life. Had the rulers of the age known what they were doing when they nailed Jesus to the cross, 1 Corinthians 2.8, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. Glory? Jesus prays in John 17. And one of the things he prays for we find in 22 and 23. He says, Father, again, this is a family affair. When he teaches us how to pray in Matthew 6, he says, pray this way, our Father. Our it's a united people. We're a unified bride. We're beautiful and peculiar because we have an otherworldly unity that binds us together. It's not just our language. It's more than just the songs we sing. It's the power of God himself in you and in me, knitting our hearts and lives together. We are family and there's no way around that. When he teaches us to pray, he says, pray our father who is in heaven. In John 17, 22 and 23, he says, father, the same way that you're in me and I am in you, I'm in them. And the glory that you've given to me, I've given it to them. At least I have a witness. The glory that you've given to me, I've given to them so that they can be made perfect in unity. 
He says, the glory that you've given to me, I have given it to them so that they can become mature in unity, depending on your version or translation, so that they can become perfect in unity, so that they can become mature in unity. He says, listen to this, the glory that you've given to me, I have given it to them so that they can be perfected in unity. Um, let me say it this way. We have glory to be unified. We carry the glory of God to be perfected in unity. We carry the glory of God so that we can become mature in unity. Jesus said it. I've given them glory so that they can live in unity. I've given them glory. Listen to that. Not just so that they can become perfected in a variety of other ways where we may desire or long to experience the glory of God. I have given them the glory that you have given to me so that they can become perfect in unity. This is what Jesus is praying for. The great high priest that Hebrews tells us now ever liveth to make intercession on our behalf. Jesus prayed that we would have the glory of God to be perfect in unity. Paul says, fight to preserve that unity. The unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Well, Mike, I hear you, bro. But, you know, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. Um, Paul tells us we wrestle. Um, but he also tells us we don't wrestle with people. Um, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. You know, Ephesians 6, 12. We don't wrestle with names and faces. He says, for our wrestling is not with flesh and blood, which tells me it's not with people and lets me know it's not with names and faces. But he does say that we wrestle. And the way that we wrestle is with powers, principalities, governing authorities in dark places in an unseen realm. So we absolutely wrestle. Paul tells them, in 1 Corinthians 15, I wrestled with wild beasts while I, was, while I was at Ephesus. We do wrestle. Daniel 10 lets us know that there's a war in the heavens and there's a wrestling. Gabriel tells Daniel, I was resisted by the prince of Persia. I was resisted because God had released me, but breakthrough could not get to you. Thank God you kept praying and fasting because breakthrough came. Michael came. We know that there is a wrestling. Um, we know that there's the spirit of the age. There's the rulers of the age. There's powers and principalities. What does that mean? That means there's demonic inspiration. There's demonic inspiration that people yield to. The enemy is desiring to influence and inspire people. Right? That's, that's Ephesians 2. The spirit of the air. The sons of disobedience working in them the spirit which rejects God, his love, his leadership. Paul says, thank God through the blood of Jesus and the victory in Christ, the wisdom of the cross, we've been set free from the tyranny of the spirit of the air, no longer bound by powers, principalities, but he's made us alive to God. We've been brought into union with Jesus by the power of the spirit. So there absolutely is a wrestling. And the wrestling is that in this hour, there are people that are yielding to demonic desires. In this hour, the enemy is influencing and inspiring people. Um, and not just enemy, but the devil. 
uh, and all of his adversaries, um, all of his uh, henchmen, all of his minions, if you would. Um, I've got kids. Um, so the devil and all of his minions are influencing people. That's very real. The escalation towards the end of the age of demonic darkness and hostility wielded out of the air. The prince of the power of the air, John 14, 30, is come. I'm not afraid. He has nothing in me. There is very real wrestling. But our fight is not with flesh and blood. It's with demonic powers. It's with demonic desires. It's with powers, principalities, governing authorities in an unseen dark realm. So I'm encouraging you to begin to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. And from within this family, this is a family talk. Again, this is not pointed at the rest of the world. This is a family talk. This is a family talk. It's time to get it together. It's time to reconcile. It's time to become champions of unity. It's time as one body by one spirit. We have one God and Father that is over all and in all and working through all. And it is time in order for us to become responsible with God's burden on our lives to implore men, be reconciled to God, but from within the family of God. It's time to reject all the ideas of why we should be divided. And it's time to be reconcilers. It's time to be reconcilers. Because right now, we have no reason to be divided except for the reasons that we willingly embrace. The wall of hostility has come down. And the broken, bloodied body of God's Son the broken body of the perfect one. He that was perfect chose to be broken so that you and I in our brokenness can experience a perfect unity. The perfect one gave himself to brokenness so that in our brokenness we could have access to perfect unity. We have no reason to be divided. We have no reason to be divided. I'm telling you, all the worldly stuff is going to pass. All the worldly stuff is going to pass. The bride is being made ready. And it's just not worth it. I'm going to pray for us. And what God is doing in us, as he is perfecting his purpose in a people throughout the nations of the world. Again, some simple takeaways and bullet points. Um, our president was never meant to unify us. Politics will only further divide us. King Jesus unifies us and he destroys all of the workings and the weapons of the warfare that seek to divide us. He has conquered them. And now it's his spirit in us that has made a way in order for us to live according to kingdom policies. We are a people that bear a unique responsibility 
And it's time for us to bring healing to God's family. We want to see our nation healed. A united church, it's been said. Lou Engel, a united church is the remedy for a divided nation. It is the prescription. God's solution to the crisis of the hour is a people, a family planted in this nation that bear his image, that are fighting to preserve this otherworldly unity by the power of his own spirit, that he has shared himself with us and taken up residency on the inside of us. This is the solution to the crisis of the hour. But let judgments begin in the house of the Lord. We have to get it together. We have to get it together. It's time to reconcile. It's time to heal. It's time to repent and to no longer be divided. Um, King Jesus, I pray for this bride that you are so in love with. I pray for this bride beautifully planted throughout the nations of the world. This bride that you thought was to die for. Lord, would you do something in our hearts by your own spirit to where you could shine a bright light illuminate the inside of our hearts where we might be able to see clearly all of the worldly warfare, where we might be able to gain a perspective of all of the world's systems and conversations, politics and more, how it is seeking to divide us and conquer us, how it is seeking to isolate us and to further inflict suffering upon your bride, God's family, this beautiful people in the earth in this hour that are to be champions of reconciliation. Um, Lord, I'm asking you to do something in our hearts. Do something in our hearts that the world can't do and it's because they're not supposed to do it. Do something by the power of your own spirit to crush all of the enemy's desires. Do something by the power of your own spirit to bring us to the point where we are willing to fight to preserve this unity that you died for. I thank you, Lord, that this is your purpose. It's only our calling because it's your purpose. It's your desire. King Jesus, have your way in your people. We know that you are readying a bride without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. Help us, Lord, to wash our robes. Help us to make ourselves ready for you. Thank you, King Jesus, that you will and you are coming again. Help us, Lord, I pray, to realize in a sober way the severity of the hour that we are alive in and to recognize that we ourselves do not have much time. But with the time that we do have, we want to love what you love. We want to champion what you champion. And we're reconcilers. 
by word and ministry and your burden in us and on us. Help us, Lord. Bring your family together. Bring your family together in our nation. Bring your family together throughout the nations of the world. Only you can do this by your spirit. Bring your family together, Lord. And may we shine bright. May we rise and shine in a dark moment. This is your solution to the crisis of the hour. I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for what you're doing. And I thank you that you are doing it and you're more committed to it than we know. We bless you, King Jesus. We bless you, King Jesus. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.